Welcome to another edition of the Cybersecurity Dispatch, where we talk with experts and practitioners who are pushing the envelope in cybersecurity. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, Keeping the Lights On, we talk with Joe Slowick, adversary hunter at Dragos. Joe takes us beyond the headlines to walk us through the real challenges and state of projecting industrial systems and critical infrastructure. Awesome. Well, Joe, thanks for coming on. Just so you know, people who don't know you, introduce yourself, your name, where you work, kind of where you're from, those sorts of things. Sure. So my name is Joe Slowick. Currently, I'm a adversary hunter at Dragos. So okay. Dragos is a industrial control system security startup right now. Yeah. Been there for about eight months. Adversary hunter is kind of a loaded term. Like, what does that mean? So really, it's threat intelligence work, but really taking more of the view that the adversary is something that can be hunted and pursued as opposed to just simply ingesting information passively and reporting on things that had already happened, but trying to adopt a more forward-leaning approach. And that's something that ties in really nicely to how I've worked in information security for my career. So prior to joining Dragos, I was running the incident response team at Los Alamos National Lab. That was a fun and rewarding and at times frustrating position. <laughs> Had a great team there, but really a lot of the emphasis and what we were trying to do was to adopt that same sort of forward-leaning, more active defense role in terms of not just responding to things, but actively seeking out and trying to stay ahead of the adversary, which is something I think is near and dear to your heart as well. Yeah. Prior to joining the lab, I was a U.S. Naval officer. I was an information warfare officer where I did some network defense, some network other things, and a little bit of time on ship, et cetera. Yeah. And before that, even, you know, it's sort of a long and winding road to get into information security. I worked for an industrial supply company in suburban Chicago doing data analytics work. And before that, I dropped out of graduate school as a philosophy <laughs> student. So it, it's been a different sort of course to get here in terms of, you know, not having the traditional CS background. <laughs> yeah. Although I, you know, I would say the majority of the people we chat with who are in this world, right, don't have that traditional background, right? Right. <laughs> It's, it's partly what makes this, this space really fun and interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, industrial controls are, are kind of certainly top of mind for a lot of people these days, right? Mm -hmm. For someone who's not as immersed in that world, sort of what are the things that you are seeing people kind of scared about, talked about, excited about, right? Mm -hmm. And all, all of the above. Right. So the concern always, especially when you start getting into individuals who are you know, less informed or you know, don't have a, as complete of an understanding of the, the underpinnings of things like the electric grid or wastewater treatment and water treatment is, oh my goodness, something network related is going to result in cascading blackouts across the country or poisoning water or you know, cause machines within a factory to spin out of control and kill someone. And these are certainly valid concerns to a point, but the, and this is, you know, walking the company line, so to speak, but it's one that I share as well. One of the reasons I work there is always adopting a nuance for the threats are real, but putting the risks in the context of we have, at least in the United States and, you know, most of the Western world, very resilient critical infrastructure. So it's not a trivial sort of action for some adversary to say, turn the lights out for the entire Eastern seaboard. Yeah. That would be quite an amazing thing to actually execute and practice the amount of pre-planning coordination and just getting the decision right multiple times across multiple infrastructures would be something that I would be very curious to meet that adversary and probably be quite in awe of them. But really making sure that while we understand that there, there are risks out there and certainly we've seen a 
increase in identified industrial control system attacks. I say identified because I'm almost certain that there are others out there that we just haven't found or even the attacked organization might not even be aware that some event was a cyber sourced incident that you know, we're seeing more and more attention paid to this space, whether it's in the general media or within the security community, because it is a concern. You know, these are things that we care about and are near and dear to our everyday life. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly, I mean, it's good to hear someone who's you know deeply involved. You're not as concerned about that sort of disaster scenario, mm-hmm. at least for, for, for Joe Q Public, which I would include myself in for the most part. That's comforting. But I do think, you know, the, the scale of the potential issues and sort of essentially taking mm-hmm. cyber attacks to a kinetic, to a, you know, an actual sort of right. world, that is something that we're starting starting to see around the world, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's the Ukraine, some of the stuff that happened in Saudi Arabia as mm-hmm. well. I was reading an article you were talking about, you know, some of the approaches to potentially defend against those, right? Particularly mm-hmm. the the two new exploits that came out with chips, right, essentially. Mm -hmm. For those people who didn't have a chance to read that, what was your sort of takeaways for how do you defend those those sort of industrial control systems? So industrial control systems are always a difficult spot to be in because our typical advice is, oh, there's a vulnerability, go patch it. Well, for an ICS environment, you can't simply take a system offline that's in charge of, you know, either monitoring the safety, reliability, or operating a steam turbine in a power plant. Instead, you have to wait for a scheduled maintenance period, which maybe that's six months from now. Maybe it's two years from now. Maybe you can never patch because it's a system that was built to a very specific specification and wasn't designed to ever really be updated until it's brought out of that environment and replaced. So when thinking about something like Spectre and Meltdown, which those have been interesting as well because the patches in play have had a rather interesting effect in environments where... The the blue screen of death, I think, is... Yeah, among other things. (laughs) So really, my advice for that was with the understanding and expectation that asset owners wouldn't be able to patch their systems, that really it's approaching it from a defense in depth perspective that, you know, Hopefully, this isn't always the case, you don't have these systems as being internet-facing. So the sorts of threats that you would need to worry about from you know, a web application server that's sitting open up to the entire internet or from a standard user doing normal browsing activity, those scenarios shouldn't apply. If they do, that's a concern in and of itself that needs to be addressed. So then looking you know, at the next step, well, how could these attacks be actualized to cause an impact within an ICS environment? Well... You know, one way, like a potential attack scenario that I brought out for Meltdown Inspector, Spectre especially, which is one of the ones that would be unpatched and that the patch itself, its efficacy is a little debatable, yeah. is you, know, you have an engineer who's on their work PC, laptop, etc., and they are using a web-based VNC client in order to configure and manage something within the industrial control network, which is traditionally separated from the regular IT network. Well, in another browser tab, they're browsing Reddit or some other forum, or it could even be something perfectly legitimate, like a forum for vendor questions or something, and there's a malicious iframe embedded into it that loads up code to start dumping memory from the browser process, and the tab, the separate browser tab is running in the same process. And so you can dump credentials for that remote communication attempt. Well, be aware of that risk. So, you know, both as a hygiene perspective, you know, pushing things like added script blocking. I know a lot of people hate saying that because that defeats them. 
you know, how many places can monetize having content hosted on the web, but considering some of the risks, you probably want that on your critical personnel, though, that might be doing this sort of processes or reevaluate, you know, credential storage, credential use, evaluating things like two-factor authentication so that even if you do find yourself in a situation where credentials have been leaked, that there is a fallback that provides an additional layer of security. Although it's interesting from the session cookie capture that even that doesn't necessarily hold because you can replay the session as long as that session is still active. So there's a number of things, but at least identifying whether it's a Spectre and Meltdown exploit, which I still haven't seen any that it appear to be more than a proof of concept, but that could just be, we haven't seen it yet. It's out there. You know, to something like a crash override or a crisis event that, you know, these things need to migrate from that sort of, you know, some attacker owned infrastructure, which is sitting somewhere on the internet, get into the IT network for the target organization, identify a way to drill down from the IT network into your industrial control network and maintain some sort of command and control through that entire process and have enough understanding once they get to the ICS environment for how to operate and how to deliver a malicious impact. So that entire chain is a non-trivial amount of work, which is why when I say earlier that you know, I'm not really worried about someone taking out every major power station or distribution station in the eastern United States because, one, these environments are somewhat different from each other, but two, just the level of work and effort required to maintain what would be a relatively trivial initial footprint in an IT network involves almost like another set of pivoting exploit and gaining access into another network. Now, certainly when you have misconfigurations, and this is something that is always a concern to us and you know, recommending that asset owners identify these, you, know, you have a vendor product that beacons home directly via a GPRS link that's not terribly well secured yeah. to receive periodic updates or to send telemetry. That's a problem. And these are the things that need to be addressed. But when it comes to some of the really critical infrastructure items, those don't seem to be as big of an issue instead of, say, maybe a you know medium-sized factory environment or some other use cases. There's always exceptions to these, but at the same time, you know, for every scary article you see about, oh my goodness, we found all of these devices accessible on Shodan, yeah, you, you might have, but there's an awful lot more that are in a much better spot. And the, the, maybe the story is not quite as bad as the headline. Right. And sometimes you look at those stories too, and you look at the devices that are identified and like, oh, half of these are actually honeypots, but I'm not going to cast aspersions on anyone's research there, but it's good to know when you're returning these results, just don't take the metadata, but take a look yeah. at what the actual results that includes. So. Yeah. No, I mean, wow, you hit on so many of the things that we talk about, think about in terms of how do you segment your potential networks, right? And, mm-hmm. and the choices you make, right? Like, if you're going to network things, you don't necessarily have to take it all the way to the internet, right? Like right. You don't have to make it open and particularly any of that sort of critical infrastructure that you're concerned mm-hmm. about, but still provide access, right? Mm-hmm. And then something that we... You know, we have a lot of conversations about is, you know, can you provide access in a way, you know, whether that's a separate browser or, you know, we even talk about using sort of virtual machines. Like, mm-hmm. do you, you know, provide a clean environment, a sort of completely segmented mm-hmm. sort of clean build so you don't have that sort of cross-scripting issues, right? Right. Even, even if you have root access at the potential. Or implementing things like jump hosts, bastion hosts. You know, one of the concepts that I like to really hit hard on, I'll be referencing it in my talk here, teaching a two-day class on this at the Opcode event in Dubai coming up in April, is adopting a strategic perspective in designing network defense. And when I say strategic, it's really moving out of the day-to-day operations of how do I respond to events in question, but it's taking it to a higher level level of how do I organize my environment and my response procedures so that I'm 
tuning what I can do and how I will respond to my likely threat environment. And one example of that would be, you know, increasing either physical or logical segmentation, probably logical since that's easier to create more choke points within the network where you can do things like identify sensors, establish white and black lists or access control lists, and then you know the same sort of natural difficulty already in doing an IT to ICS migration increases further by creating subnets, not simply the logical model for how an ICS network is set up is something called the Purdue model, which is a zero to five, zero being your physical controllers up to layer five is your corporate IT network. You know, not having those layers be flat in themselves, but you know, further dividing up these so that it's not trivially easy to move between one or the other, and you would get the added bonus of potentially adding monitoring solutions to make up for a lack of host visibility between any one item because you'll have the possibility of capturing lateral movement or attempts at communication between them. Yeah, no, I, I think you know, really interesting, interesting stuff in terms of how do you make it potentially more challenging and expensive for mm-hmm. an attacker to kind of penetrate right. and sort of move through your system, right? So mm-hmm. it's not it's not are we secure or not secure, right? Like, right. It's, no, like, it's not a binary just sort of decision. It's really how do you how do you kind of make the the challenges for your most critical, your most sort of sensitive items mm-hmm. the most kind of challenging, expensive for an attacker to, to hit. Right. You know, one thing, you know, my boss and Dragos's founder, CEO, Rob Lee, myself and others in the company always kind of repeat is, you know, there's this misconception that the attacker only needs to get it right once and the defender needs to get it right every time. That's not necessarily the case because, you know, you flip that script and really if you, especially if you've had a background in doing offense, that the adversary really needs to get it right every step of the way. And if you're just talking about detecting them, the defender really only needs to get it right once. So if you increase the number of times that that adversary must get it right, you know, whether you're talking about just a natural IT to ICS migration, but, you know, making it even harder by increasing the amount of effort, work, and steps required to achieve an effect, you've just enabled the defender now. It's like, I don't just have to possibly catch you at maybe three or four steps, but rather... 15 or 16 sorts of instances where the adversary must get those right and sustain that success. And the defender hopefully catches things earlier. That's always preferable. But at the very least, getting multiple bites at the apple for an analogy. Yeah. I mean, that is is sort of defense in depth and Mm -hmm. great sort of in practice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really interesting. And, and, you know, we, we see that in the, the people that we talk to, right? Like thinking about multiple steps that you need to jump through. We are often trying to implement sort of a dynamic piece as well, right? So even if you, you know, you've, you've, you've unlocked, you know, 10 of the keys, right? right. Suddenly mm-hmm. key number 11 is, you know, it's different today than it was yesterday and it will be tomorrow. So you're just incredibly frustrating for an attacker, right? They get there and they're just suddenly... Right. You know, all the work that they did is suddenly useless, right? Yes. That's really interesting. I mean, when you think about kind of people who are doing this well, and, I, you know, mm-hmm. in this space, you can't, you typically can't name, name names, but sort of what are the things that you are seeing in, particularly in industrial control systems, you know, whether that's particular vendors or particular users, like what are they, what are they getting right? And sort of who, who do you put up and examples you put up as sort of things to aspire to? Okay. I'm not going to get into specifics, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't expect yeah. it to. But as a community, especially as you're talking about a community that consists of a large, if not a majority, members who are not 
you know, IT, IT security backgrounds, but engineers, process engineers, mechanical engineers, et cetera, that operate these environments or even, you know, more, you know, dirt under the fingernails. Like, you know, we know how to, to operate the machinery and make the environment work, but cybersecurity is something new is the amount of awareness, concern, and desire to solve these problems is it's there. So you see a lot of the sort of headline grabbing stories about these environments are insecure, they're insecure by design, we're setting ourselves up for disasters that really, if you look at the individuals who are involved in the day-to-day operation of these environments, they're aware of these issues and working diligently to resolve them as best as they can, given the limitations required and how these environments operate, what amount of flexibility exists. So certainly, and you know, like I said, it's industry-wide or at least vertically-wide that you know, people are paying attention to stories like crisis, like crash override, like the 2015 Ukraine event, and realize that, huh, you know, this is something, it, it might be on the other side of the world, but you know, not taking the viewpoint of you know, all of California goes dark at one point in time, but a single plant, that's very doable. Yeah. And there's the recognition of what do we need to do, how can we be, get better to make sure that that isn't us. And I think that that is something that's being sustained and hopefully is getting pushed forward to identify ways to solve these problems. Yeah. I mean, it's a challenge, right? I heard someone else I was talking with, the the, the sort of typical life, a lot of these, this equipment is 35 years, right? I mean, you imagine roll back the clock that gets us to about to 1980, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty scary if you think of like, what are the computer systems that were running in 1980? Right. (laughs) Not really expecting to be networked for sure. Right. But even then, just having an idea for, you know, what there's an advantage to an ICS environment in that the systems are designed to do one or a few things. It's not like, say, a Windows workstation that someone uses for their day-to-day work where they're playing solitaire, using Excel, browsing the internet, and, you know, using one or two or three chat platforms. Instead, these are systems designed to operate within fairly narrow tolerances and expectations of what they do. And having an understanding of not just you know what those limitations are, because then you can go down the road of anomaly detection. I think there's some value there, but I also think that's limiting. But it also lets you identify from a threat-based perspective, like, well, what are the things that I would observe or what are the things that an adversary must do in order to enter that environment and then start doing something? And that enables an informed detection and informed defense based around that threat environment where you really can provide an operator who might not even have much in the way of a security background, but they just so happen to be responsible for identifying these events to give them a detailed understanding of like, we observe this in your network. This is where it's weird or different from how it you know, normally operates, but also here's the context around what we observed in terms of network activity, host activity, if we've seen it, and how this ties into the threat environment and maybe some specific threat actors. So you know, not just that, oh, something weird is going on. What do you do with that? But also something weird happened. It's correlated with these other events, which are indicative of this sort of intrusion activity. And now you've given someone, if you've done this correctly, the ability not just to understand that something is wrong, but also, well, what does it mean and what do I do about it? And that's really is an industry where we need to go instead of just saying, you know, I'm not trying to cast dispersions on any other products here, but, you know, just throwing a alert out leads to alert fatigue, especially if it lacks that context, because you don't know where to go next. But developing a more analytical approach focused on threat behaviors really empowers individuals to respond and react to events as they come along. Yeah. And is that, I mean, 
I'd love to kind of hear about what you're doing directly at Dragos and sort of the things that the, the way that you're tackling some of those challenges. What, where do you guys kind of fit in that environment and into that sort of life cycle? Right. So that's precisely what we aim to do. So my specific role is adding that threat perspective to the industrial environment. So what threat, when I say threat actors, that always leads to the discussion of like, oh, you mean Russia or you mean the NSA? Well, no. The perspective on threat actors that I take, and this is something that I talk about frequently you know, at events and personally, it's always a, a categorization of behaviors that define a some operating entity. So you might see several sort of distinct activity groups that may all correlate to some in-person organization, but from a defender's perspective... While it's nice to know if you can actually figure this out, like so-and-so is responsible, really what I need to know is how does this group operate? What are their tactics, techniques, procedures, and how do I counter them? And that information gives you all you need in order to conduct defense. So filling in that part of the picture, that allows us at Dragos to apply this with the platform aspect of our company to, okay, we've got an idea for what our threat environment, our bad actors look like, how they behave. What information do we need now to hunt them down, find them where they exist, and notify people that such and such is going on? And that's where the platform fits in. Not just to tell you that, hey, something weird happened, but we observed several data points that all correlate to crash override-like attack, crisis-like attack, or pick one of the other ICS focus groups that we track so that individuals responding aren't lost in the dark, so to speak, when it comes to any single data point, but rather are presented a more complete picture of what's going on in their environment. Right. We've seen this movie before. This is right. usually kind of how it plays mm-hmm. out. Yeah, because even looking from a response perspective, you know, it's not just like, hey, here's something happened, but also here's something happening. Here's a playbook for how you might respond or how you might want to respond. These are the additional data you need to arrive at a clearer decision. These are the things to look for next because, you know, having come from an incident response background, one of the critical things isn't just finding out that something happened. It's also okay, now what? Right. How do they move? Did they, or if they did, how did they move laterally in my environment? How do I track them to truly understand the attack footprint? And then how do I roll that up in order to not just wipe and rebuild one machine, if you were even able to do that, but then roll that infection event all the way up so that I kick them off individual posts and then deny every other point of access that they've managed to come across. Yeah. So from that, you guys don't do the remediation piece, but you sort of or do you? No. So really, it's providing the information. So visibility into the environment and awareness from a threat-oriented perspective on what it means. Is that remediation piece, are there other kind of players in the space who are tackling that side of the issue? Or is it so bespoke based on the system and the, and the team that they're really having to handle it inside? So yes and no. So I sort of misspoke. You know, at Dragos we have a threat operations center that includes incident response retainers and you know some very skilled and very intimidating, in my opinion. They're, they're nice people, but they're really smart people, individuals with incident response backgrounds that can provide that yeah. as a service. But even in looking at it, you know, we've seen a variety of things. Like you know, certainly there's Mandians out there, and they were involved in the Trisis Triton event. We've even seen vendors get involved in these sorts of remediation questions. So the same event for Trisis, Schneider Electric got involved. And actually, they were, you know, to give them a lot of credit and you know, praise for how they handled the situation. They were very open, engaging with the community and willing to work with others in order to solve the problem, so to speak. So we're seeing more of that. But otherwise, you know, one of the 
questionable things is from a traditional incident response security operations center perspective, those who are engaged in those operations at an organization typically have an IT only view and don't understand or may not even have access to that ICS environment. So having that level of expertise, it's a knowledge gap that's being addressed. And, you know, I think there's awareness around it, but we're not there yet for having a lot of that to be internalized. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard that in several of my conversations, sort of the guys who are running the industrial control systems and the security teams are often not even reporting into the same people or really speaking the same language. And they really, you know, an interesting sort of way I heard it talked about was that for industrial control guys, the CIA kind of list is flipped, right? That availability is at the top, right? Whereas confidentiality is often sort of the top for people right. in the security space. So That's possible. There's some artificial elements that get introduced in looking at things that way. So I, I've heard that often as well, that availability is key. Well, integrity is pretty damn important too. You know, if my controller logic for a safety instrumented system is compromised or altered in some way, right. like say what the purpose of the Trisis attack was, yeah. that's pretty problematic. Yes, you know, exactly. Right? And confidentiality, that probably is a lesser one, although even there, the... You know, just taking a screenshot from an HMI within an industrial control environment can provide you with a wealth of information on proprietary processes and technology. So, you know, it, it's never as easy as it seems, right. I guess. Is the theory, thing. in theory, yes. it's very simple. <laughs> yeah, but otherwise, though, you know, it's an unfortunate disconnect within the security community that, you know, like I was saying earlier, the, the ICS guys, the engineers, the plant personnel... They know their systems. They know what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to operate and not engaging them when you have sort of silos of excellence within the organization is very dangerous because, yeah, your IT SOC might understand, like, oh, this looks like command and control traffic, but what does it mean? How does it apply within the OT space is always a much cagier topic to address unless you engage those that really have a fundamental understanding of these, then you're never going to really arrive at a very good answer. You may arrive at very bad answers. Yeah. I mean, this has been great. You know, the floor is yours. Anything you kind of want to talk about, let people know, kind of, you know, this is, this is your, your mini soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my mini soapbox is very similar to how we started this conversation is, you know, Dragos has adopted a very aspirational company motto of safeguarding civilization, which I, I snickered at it when I first learned of the company and I thought they've got to be joking, but that mission statement rings true. I mean, yeah. maybe we'll change it down the line like Google did with don't be evil, but we'll see. We're not nowhere near there yet. But, <laughs> but having that aspirational value is important because even though I will say to whoever's asking that causing some of the large scale cascading zombie apocalypse events is a a lot easier to do that with a nuclear weapon than it is through a cyber attack. Having said that, though, taking on an individual facility or targeting and having an effect on an individual facility or, you know, say Washington, D.C., as opposed to the entire East Coast, that is more feasible. And that's, those are things that we need to be worried about. And I think the community is moving in the right direction. At Dragos, we're committed to helping in that movement, even just through talks like this, presentations at a conference on defense to engage with not just the ICS community, but even the IT community of building awareness for how these issues resonate and what sort of challenges lie therein. Because there are a lot of false assumptions on both sides, either that all IT wants to do is look at all the traffic and block and white machines. And on the IT side, that these are fragile environments and they just need to be isolated and walk away from it. Air gap, just air gap. Right. That's all and I need to do. If you think it's air gap, then 
there are exceptions to this, but most of the time, if you feel that something's air gapped, you missed something. <laughs> <laughs> I heard them described like unicorns, right? Yes. Lots of people yeah. talk about them, but they're not. Yeah. So far, you've never seen one. <laughs> right. A truly air gap network is quite the rare thing. Yeah. yeah. Joe, this is great. Thank you okay. so much for coming on. Hey, thank um, you for having so me. Sure.